0: We we are in Advent, and um, we've been looking at the idea, uh this Advent, of God with us. And so a couple of weeks ago, we, we've looked at directional things, just to sort of understand what it means for God to be with us. So two weeks ago, David talked about God's in front of us, God's before us, and that's the uh, the cloud by day and the fire by night. And then last week, he talked to you guys about God's behind you, he's protecting you. So in the midst, and that very encouraging message about how you might die uh, that he gave, um, it was... That was supposed to be funny. Y'all are up today. All right, good. Um, so <laughs> feeling it. Um, he uh he he told you guys that God was watching over you and and would be protecting you and would uh just maintain your soul and your heart. Uh and this week I get to talk about God beside us. And so um, so I want to start off by talking to you guys about Christmas carols. And I'm gonna be very careful about this because I alienated half the people. Starting out at nine and that wasn't a good place to be, especially if you're not the regular guy. Um, So how many of you guys love Christmas songs? How many of you love them? Like you're early, like you're like, I mean, for me, I make my wife wait until the day after Thanksgiving. But you love them. Show me your hands again. I want to make sure. Okay, hear me. All of you people raising your hands. Christmas carols are awesome. They're great. There are. I, I believe that none of them are written by anyone who has ever had a baby, though. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that no Christmas carol was ever written by anyone that had a baby. I'm convinced that no nativity scene that's ever been put together was made by anybody that had a baby. And I'm going to just give you a few examples of this. The first is the song Away in a Manger. You guys familiar with this song, Away in a Manger? So I searched, I Googled Away in a Manger, and I looked for images of Jesus being away in a manger. And that's what I got. Right? Like, perfect. Like, I was saying earlier, I was like, if Herod had just known to look for the blonde-haired white kid in the middle of first century Palestine. So, but, (laughs) that's away in a manger. Right? And if you think about the word, like, I've never, never seen a real-life baby do any of that. Right? And you think about the words, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, but the little Lord Jesus Lay down his sweet head, right? Like in hay. Because everybody knows that that's what you want to stick your newborn baby in for them to get a good night's rest is hay, right? Like we went to a living nativity last night. And you know the one thing that wasn't living in the nativity? The baby, exactly It was a doll Because everybody knows that That's stupid It stinks You put a baby in hay They're going to scream They're going to yeah, What if they're newborn It's gross Like I know everybody says Birth is beautiful But there's a reason They give the kid a bath When he first comes, right? Like it's like It's just this mess But the little Lord Jesus To us in the hymn Because somebody Who never had a kid Wrote it Said that he's asleep on the hay And then it goes on It says the cattle are lowing I don't know what that means But I'm pretty sure It's making noise Am I, anybody Anybody a lowing expert On this? Cattle experts? Right? So I don't like I don't know about you guys, but my first experience with babies was having kids I was the youngest child and so I never kind of worked with babies or anything like that But I remember when emma my little girl emma like To get her to go to sleep when she was a baby was like the greatest thing in the world, right? Some of you guys are doing that right now, but to get her to go to sleep like you had to have contact You know what i'm talking about like she had to have a hand or something And so like literally like you would she would be in the crib and my hand would be on her somewhere and, like, it was like Indiana Jones, right, trying to switch the things out, right, and get out of the temple, right? So I'm trying to figure out how many fingers can I take off at what rate so I can leave. And if the moment that I had taken my hand off my baby, there was a cow in her room that started mooing, it would have been the worst experience ever, right? And it's like, oh, he awakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That never happens, right? It's just ridiculous. The next, so one more song. One more song I'm going to take apart. Are there any Drummer Boy fans? Any? Any? Little drum. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting you early. I don't even know that I know you. All right. So here's the thing to me about the drummer boy. Throw the drummer boy up here. Little drummer boy wants us to believe that the best way to get a baby to go to sleep is to have this guy come in the room, right? And I was saying earlier, like, have you ever had... A, anybody had a baby with, like, colic or something? Like, they kind of have something... But, like, you've never thought to yourself if we just had a percussionist, right? Like, if we just had somebody... If Mike Bettingfield would just get in here and just start banging, the baby would fall asleep, right? It just... It, it, it doesn't work that way, right? And, and every kind of nativity, what we do is we, we sort of, we, we step away from this real idea of a baby. And we put up like Jesus, the magic baby. Show that next image. That's, it's, look, it's Jesus, the magic baby, right? Like if, if you ever see a kid, a newborn kid who looks like that and looks at you that run the other way. Do not go towards that child because they don't look like that. Right. But there's this thing within us that it, we're, we're kind of uncomfortable with the reality of Jesus. Right. I was told in the last service that I said poop and pee too many times. So I'm only going to say it once. All right. But that's what babies do. And that's what he did. And there's no Christmas carols about that. Right. There's no nativity story about that. It, it, it makes us uncomfortable to think about this. And it's easier to look at like Jesus is this like almost otherworldly visitation. Right. Like he's not human. He's visiting. He's almost like an alien. And and the problem with that, the biggest problem with that is that Jesus is a magic baby. Then all he is is a magic man. Right, like I used to uh, w- a show that I loved growing up uh, was called King of the Hill. Do you guys know this show, King of the Hill? Right, and I loved it. And I'm, that may not speak well of me to you, but whatever. Um, and and they they did some really good religious commentary. And there was this episode where uh, Bobby, the son on the King of the Hill, some of you guys saw this. You're you're so happy I couldn't find the video. Um, but he he had to do a report on Jesus. For his Sunday school and he had seen a magician a few nights before and so he did his report on the amazing Jesus and it was like a magic show and it was more comfortable when we read about Jesus to kind of think of him as this magic man. Because, in some ways, every religion is able to understand that God is in front of us, God goes before us, God is this big, mighty God, and we believe that here and it's so true, and it's absolutely true that God is above us and in front of us, and even even for a lot of religions, it's easy to believe that God's going to take care of us on the back end like like when when this world's over and all that that God's kind of fighting he's on our side and 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 he wins in the end and and but it's really hard for a lot of religions, and in fact i've spent a good amount of time studying various uh, religions and most of them, what they really struggle with more than anything is this idea that in Christianity that God would become human. Right. It's not that God is God. It's that God is human. And it was confusing. It was confusing for the early church to try to figure that out. It's confusing for us. And so what instead what we do is we make him the magic man. Right. We kind of make him God, the alien visitor who doesn't really act like people and doesn't go to the bathroom and doesn't blow his nose and doesn't like do stuff like that. But he's here hanging out with us like I would pet my dog, right? Or, or like you would hold a baby. That, that's kind of what he's doing. And the problem with that is if we miss that, then we miss a lot of Christmas. And if we miss that, then we actually miss a lot of Christianity, right? Because one of the things that makes us fundamentally different as Christians is that we say he was fully human. And it's confusing. There are actually religions out there that believe they can take Jesus as God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, and then they actually say on the cross, there's no way. There's just no way God would do that. And so they eliminate God from Jesus on the cross, and they say, well, then he came back afterwards. But again, what fundamentally makes us different is that we believe that Jesus was not only fully God, but that he was fully human. And so what we're going to do is it was, we're going to look at three things. I kind of got a theology section for those of you guys that sort of love that. Some of you guys are like, right? But, but for those of you who love kind of the, the knowing God aspect, and that's good. Like, God, I don't want to know about you. I want to know who you are. I've kind of got a theology section, and then I've got a practical application section for the rest of us, which is that idea of like, okay, so what do I do with what I know about God? And, and we're going to look at this idea just through three scripture passages of what does it mean that God is beside us? What does it mean that the fully God, awesome God, would would do the unthinkable and be born? Right? Think about that. Like, God could have just been like, boom, it could have been like Terminator, right? Just show up in the thing. but, But he didn't. He was born. Right? I tell students this all the time. I say, God doesn't just love you enough to die for you. He loves you enough to choose to go through puberty for you. What does it mean? Then he went through acne and his voice changing and weird emotions and whatnot. And what, what does it mean that God walked beside us? God, how does that happen? If you look in Philippians uh, chapter 2, Start in verse 5, it, kinds of, it kind of puts to death this idea that Jesus is just a magic man. So if you're struggling with that, just uh, listen to this passage. It says, uh, Paul's talking to people about how they should treat each other, and he kind of pulls the Jesus card on them. Right? He says, all right, listen, 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 listen. I know you don't want to be nice to each other, but here's what Jesus did. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. In Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that Jesus was with God, everything he ever needed, omnipotence, omniscience, he could do whatever. And he never, always in communication with the Father, always in communication with the Spirit, he was, he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born In the likeness of men. He emptied himself. What that means is he became fully human. See, God walks beside us in dependence. God walks beside us in dependence. Have you ever noticed in your life, have you ever noticed the difference between a day when you're kind of in prayer and a day when you're not? You ever notice that there's a difference between those two days, that one of them kind of feels a little more chaotic? It feels a little. I'm not saying that you like get win the lottery when you pray, but that you notice the difference right between a day when you're acknowledging the presence of God and when you don't. You acknowledge that things are just something. There's something more peaceful. There's something better. There's something more directed in the days when I'm acknowledging God than when I'm not. Do you know that Jesus did that, too? You know, Jesus, because Jesus sort of, when he emptied himself of the Godhead, he took himself away and became dependent on the Holy Spirit to communicate with God. Right? Jesus got away early to pray. We see that all the time. Jesus took time away. He took time by himself. He took time to pray. Jesus went from always seeing God to having to, like, quiet his mind. Right? Some people are like, well, he prayed all the time because he was God. That's ridiculous. God doesn't need to pray. Right? Right? Humans need to pray. It was the human side of Jesus that said, I'm dependent on this communication with God. I'm dependent on this communion with God. Jesus walks beside you in that, in that that part of you that says, I've got to quiet my mind. I've got to to kind of search out God. He walks beside us in dependence. Have you ever... um, Have you ever had a situation in your life where things are not going the way you want them to or where things are going a different way? And you're kind of like, God, I'm not sure what you're doing or I'm not sure what you're not doing. I don't know about where this is going. You ever have it? We have a situation like that in our family currently where we're kind of like, God, it seems like like this would be better. But what about this? Do you ever do that with God? You ever kind of get in that space? Jesus did, too. It's so crazy to think about that in the garden like we have a we have the actual on, you know, record. He probably did it other times. We have it on record in the garden of Jesus being like, oh, father, this, I don't know about this. Is this the way we have to go? Jesus actually had to submit his will to God's will. Isn't that crazy? He actually had to choose to submit his will to God's will. You know, in our house, we kind of have a rule. I do the mornings with our kids, and Jane does bath time. Do you guys have any, like, negotiations like that in your family, those of you who have kids? Because I'm better in the mornings, and by about 8 or 9 o'clock, I call it the rule if you don't want to hang out with me anymore. Because in my anger, I don't want to sin. Right? Isn't that biblical? In my anger, I don't want to sin. I always wonder myself, like, did Jesus have a 10 p.m. rule with the disciples? Was he like, all right, after 10, I'm tired. Right? Because I'm human. Did he have a, anybody get hangry? Anybody hungry, angry people? Yeah, I don't know if he got like that. I don't know, but he could have because he got hungry. He could have been like, all right, when I'm hungry, I need to make sure I eat something before I talk to these guys. Maybe that's why he sent him off to get food while he was at the well. Maybe he was like, just go away and get me some food so I can deal with you again. I don't know. But he was dependent. And it's easy for us to get that. It's easy for us to get that Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit. But if we don't understand that, he's kind of just a model of how to work really hard and be really religious, right? If we don't understand that for him, he's kind of this unreachable thing if he's the magic man. But if we see him as this human who said, I'm going to give myself, I'm going to empty myself and be dependent on on the Holy Spirit. And then he looks at us and he says, that same spirit's available to you. Then we see him walking beside us in dependence. And he says, I'm a model of what life can look like when you walk with the Holy Spirit. I'm not some sort of magic man who's learned some tricks about God. Right? I know what it's like to step in and touch a guy who has leprosy. As a human. I, I, I know what that's like. To be fully dependent on God. To heal that person that I touch. He walks beside us in dependence. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, everybody loves genealogies, so I figured I'd throw one in, right? Does that work? In Matthew, this is kind of Christmassy, right? So you see uh, the story, kind of Jesus' uh, descendants. And Matthew does something really interesting in this, in that he points out uh, four women. Almost the whole genealogy is men, but he points out these four women. He doesn't point them out to shame them. He doesn't point them out. Uh, to say women are bad or anything like that, but he kind of points them out to point to some interesting things in jesus 's bloodline, so we 're just going to read through and, and stop along the way and i 'll Edit some of these because they're kind of risque, but it says Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and of Judah's 11 brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah and Perez and Zerah's mother was Tamar. And you guys remember when you were here in Genesis, when we talked about Tamar, you remember who Tamar is. The gist I will give you in the kind of PG-13 rating for my people. Um, is that uh, Tamar was a woman who was abandoned and had to deceive her own family for her own well-being, and she had to do it in a pretty devious way. If you want to look up and read about her, and Matthew kind of says, "Oh, hey, remember Tamar is in this lineage." And then it goes on. It says Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron was the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Ab- was the father, not the farmer of. That- Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. And he stops again. And he says, Boaz's mother was Rahab. If you remember Rahab, Rahab was a Canaanite. So she was an outsider as well. And she also um, was a woman of ill repute. We'll say that. Um, who uh, helped house spies. Uh, Israelites. Um, And he includes that and he says, this is part of the lineage. And it goes on, it says, Boaz was the father of Obed. His mother was Ruth. You guys remember we read Ruth a few weeks ago. A Moabite woman who converted to the Hebrew faith. This is a big deal because Matthew's writing to Jews. And he's like, hey. And one of his descendants, she was an outsider. She was an outsider. She was a Yankee. She was a Florida fan. She was a whatever, whatever you want to call them. That's what she was. Right? Obed was the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of David. And now they're starting to get riled up. They're like, yeah, David. And he says, who is the king of the nation of Israel? And they're like, king of the nation. And they're like, David was the father of Solomon. And they're like, why Solomon? And then he says his mother was Bathsheba and she was married to a man named Uriah. And then you start to do the math. You're like, wait a minute. I thought she was married to David. And he's like, no. Yeah, David was there. But David wasn't squeaky clean either. And neither was Solomon. There was stuff that happened in there. Yeah, David was king, king of Israel, but David was also a guy who deceived and murdered just to get something he wanted because he was selfish. And he includes these things in there just to kind of let us know that Jesus knew what it was like to have awkward family relationships. Right? Jesus got it. Jesus knew what it was like To have these things that have happened in your family that nobody wants to talk about. Some of you guys know that, right? Like, you know, the family member, you're going to go to holiday parties and you're going to go to Christmas with your relatives. And there's going to be things that nobody's allowed to talk about, right? The one time that this happened or this person or there's going to be awkward people there. Right? And you don't know how to deal with them. Jesus gets that. Jesus walks beside us in relationship. He knows what it's like to be the oldest child. How many oldest children? In here, oldest child, right? Like he knows what it's like to be the oldest child, right? Your whole family goes on a trip together and the parents are like, oh, is everybody here? And they start to leave. And who do they forget? The oldest child, right? They just leave him and they forget about him. Well, my sister, who's my oldest sister on her 16th birthday, my parents completely forgot. Her 16th birthday, right? Oldest child. They don't remember you because they're so busy with the baby or whatever. He knows what it's like to be the oldest child. He knows what it's like to be the oldest child and have your mom come up and think you gotta be in charge of stuff, right? Like his mom walks up at his wedding and she says, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, that's not really my thing. Okay? Wine is not really my thing. And of course, like a mom, she doesn't listen at all. She just goes right ahead, sorry. She just goes right ahead and says, just do what he says. Jesus knows what's that, what that's like. To have your mom expect you to be responsible for things that are not in your wheelhouse. He knows what it's like to have your mom not listen to you about things. Right? Jesus knows what it's like to live in obscurity. He kind of just lived for 30 years when you know you're made for something more. And nobody else sees it. Jesus knows what it's like to have your own family members call you crazy for what you're trying to do. He knows what it's like to enjoy a friend's wedding and he knows what it's like to mourn a friend's death. He knows what it's like to have these incredible bonding moments with your friends, right? The disciples come back and they're like, hey, look at all these things that that happened in the name of God. And Jesus is like, that's awesome, right? He knows what it's like to celebrate that. He knows what it's like to have those same people stab him in the back. God walks beside us in our relationships. Jesus knows what it's like to be targeted by people who are supposed to be on their same team. And he knows what it's like to be misunderstood. God walks beside us in every kind of relationship we could imagine next thing, Hebrews chapter two. And I feel like that this is kind of the, the, the quintessential passage on this where it starts to unpack. Why does this happen? And, and why would God go through all this? And why is this important? It says this, starting in verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting, which means it was the complete best thing to do. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, the big God, the omniscient, the omnipotent, the wow, the worship you God, should make the pioneer of their salvation. Not the only one who goes, but the one who goes first, perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holier of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. God walks beside us to call his brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. And in the assembly, when I'm with them, when I'm by their side, I'm going to sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him just like they have to. I will put my trust in God just like they have to. And again, he says, here am I and the children that God has given me. Here we are together. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. So the devil had death over here. And Jesus says, I'm going to be human and I'm going to fly into death because God doesn't die. God can't fly into death, but human can. And so I'm going to fly right into the middle of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of that same death. I'm going to say, you don't have to be afraid because I'm going there. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Jesus is not interested in helping angels. Isn't that kind of cool? Like he's like, I don't want to be an angel. I want to be like you. Because you're who I want to help. For this reason, he had to be made like them. Had to. Fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. God walks beside us in suffering. Hebrews said it had to happen that way. It had to happen. If he was really going to identify with us, he had to suffer. He had to suffer. Because the reason is, what really unites us is suffering, isn't it? Good things are fine and good, but, but but I know that in my marriage, the things that have probably drawn us closer together than anything is when we're going through the terrible, terrible thing, and I thank God at least I get to lay down to that person who gets it, and at least I get to wake up next to them suffering unites us in a way that that we would never choose, to be honest with you. And it doesn't even just unite us with the people we already know. It unites us with strangers, right? Have any of you ever lost someone to cancer and then you run into a stranger who has lost someone to cancer and it's all of a sudden it's like you know, right? Like you just know. Uh, A few weeks ago, um, uh, this didn't happen a few weeks ago, but but a while back, my wife uh, lost her her stepfather um, in a terrible, terrible, tragic way. And and we ran into somebody who um, had a friend who had lost their stepfather in eerily the same way. And there was this moment of conversation was when she heard that her heart just almost, you could almost see it leaping towards the people, right? Like, and her eyes just went, whoop, and they fill up. And there's this moment when it's like, you have to pray for them because you understand. You have to speak to this because you understand because suffering unites people. Now, here's the crazy thing about God beside us in our suffering. And it makes no sense that if if she or if I could get her stepfather back, we would take him back in an instant. We don't care who we identify with, right? And those of you that have lost loved ones, you feel that you're suffering. If you could have it back in an instant, you would probably take it. God chose to go there. He was the only one who could pick it. And he said, I'll go through it. I'll do it to be close to you. It's like we kind of hit that, and that's a moment of grace. And we're like, well, God, I know this terrible thing happened, but at least this happened. God said, I'm going to go into it on purpose for this to happen. God walks beside us in our suffering. So that's kind of the theology of this God beside us. And really the, the, the real question that I have to ask myself is why? Like, why does it matter? Why, why does he do this? If, if this is so crucial and it's littered all over the New Testament that this is who he is and he does it in such profound and also such simple ways... Why does he walk beside us? And, and there's probably an infinite number of reasons for why. And I just kind of picked out three that I wanted to share with you guys. And one is kind of this this big reason um, that Hebrews alluded to uh, in in that chapter that we read. And we're going to talk more about it right now. And that's the idea of God walks beside us so that he can get us. In Hebrews chapter 4. To get us. See, here's the thing. You you throw that up there. Here's the thing. Uh, In order to to get back to God, right? One of the things we believe in Christianity and one of the things that the Old Testament teaches is that God started in relationship with humans. Then sin comes in and God has this eternal life. And we have this sinful death. And there's a chasm between the two. And, and, And we can't get across it. And Jesus is over here in the eternal life with God and they're living in the Godhead and they're fine and well and enjoying each other. But he looks over there and he says, that's not good. And so he steps into death to connect us back to life. And suddenly he becomes the one that touches both ends. He walks beside us. To get us. The only way for that to happen was for him to be God and for him to walk beside us at the same time. It doesn't happen from a magic transport of God to earth like an alien. It happens when God goes through birth and suffering and death and now can reach every side of it. That's what makes a way for God to get us to the kingdom. Is walking beside us. That is how God gets us to the kingdom. But it's not just to get us. It's also to get us. Right? If if you look in this passage, if you look back at the Hebrews 4 passage, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. You know the difference between sympathy and empathy, right? Like we all know that. Sympathy is I feel bad for you. Empathy is I feel what you're feeling. And empathy leads to intimacy. Sympathy sometimes leads to pity, but empathy leads to intimacy. And in Jesus walking beside us, we have a God who gets us because God doesn't want to just get us to the kingdom someday, God wants intimacy with us today. He wants us to know him, and he wants us to know that he knows us. If you look in 2 Corinthians, it says this in in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our trouble so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we shared abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds Through Christ, the experience of the Holy Spirit as one who walks beside us, who can inform our lives because Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus had those awkward relationships and he can be like, here's how I dealt with my brothers. Right? Jesus had those moments where his friends stabbed him in the back and he's able to speak to us through the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit and say, not just here's what you should do, but here's what I did. And here's what the Holy Spirit will give you, the same power to do. And without that, informing our lives, we'll never be conformed to his image. Without God walking beside us, informing our life as as the real God, the God who was human and walked through this world, we won't know what it's like to be conformed to his image because we'll think we have to become magic, right? And, and, and unless God's able to walk beside us through the power and the intimacy of the Holy Spirit, then everything we ever say about God loving us is like your parents taking you to the prom. Right? It's like, yeah, you went, but do you really want to show anybody the pictures? Do you really want to talk about what it was like? God doesn't just get us. Into the kingdom. He wants to get us and let us know that he does. If you want to say, God's not lacking in anything. But if you want to say, before Jesus or outside of Jesus coming to earth, God was lacking in humanity. And in empathy with humanity. But through Jesus, we find a God that doesn't just rule over us, but but speaks out on our behalf because he understands us. And then finally, it's this idea of God doesn't want to just get us in the kingdom. He wants to get the kingdom in us. If you finish in that second Corinthians passage, it says, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and he says, if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. And so what Paul is saying is this. I've experienced this and God walking beside me in comfort and in suffering and him and forming those things and whatever and if you can't see him just look at me because then you can see him and that's how the kingdom breaks into the world that's how you really do your deal instead of just doing something you're talented at right is that you make space for God to walk beside you in the intimacy and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and then there are people that haven't experienced that intimacy and haven't experienced that power and haven't experienced that getting me to the kingdom moment but they're able to look at you and say oh That's what it looks like for God to walk beside me because the same spirit that was in him is in them. God walks beside us not just to get us, but to get others into that experience. Philippians 2. The beginning of that passage that we just read kind of shows what Paul's trying to get to of this idea that Jesus emptied himself. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit oh, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Why? How? God? that's That, that must be just ridiculous because it's not possible. But wait. The human God, Jesus, did that. dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so you can too, but not on your own. On dependence. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. God longs to walk beside us, to get us. And to get to others who don't know that yet. So so really quick, if, if I could give you kind of one overall challenge for this Christmas, it would be to look at these areas where God walks beside us and say, God, where do I really need to know you walking beside me this Christmas? Where do I need you to inform and conform me? Where do I need to believe that you walked through those things? Is it my relationships? Is it when I feel like I don't know what you're doing and I have to be dependent? What is it? And, and if you were just going to, if you were, if you had those things written down, which one would you circle and say, that's what I want. And my challenge to you would be to ask God for that this Christmas. Walk beside me in this. And then specifically for today, as boat comes back up, I feel like there, there are kind of three groups of people on my heart. Can we have the ministry teams come forward and come forward? Um... Our ministry teams are up here to pray for you about anything. It it can be anything. It doesn't have to be anything. I taught, whatever. Whatever you have, they want to pray for you. But specifically, um, I would say if you fall into one of these three groups and you're like, I wonder if I should get prayer. Yes, get prayer today. Um, The first two are up there. The first is you've known God beside you at some point in your life, right? There's been moments where you have experienced that presence of God and it's just been awesome. But, But it's just kind of been squeezed out by other things. It wasn't on purpose. You didn't necessarily do anything wrong. Maybe it was Christmas is busy. Maybe you had a kid and you never really kind of re, recalibrated to figure out what does it look like now with kids, or you got married and you never really recalibrated, or you got a new job, or or just life changed, and or something happened, and and that God walking beside me, it just got squeezed out, and it's not there anymore. If that's you, I, I really encourage you to come forward and just receive prayer for that today. The second are, are those of us who are like, I've just never. Experience that. And and you kind of chalk it up to a feeling thing. And there are feeling people, and then there's me, right? Like, But, but what I want you to know is that God walking beside us is a truth. It's not a feeling. And, and so if that's you and you've never experienced that, um, I would encourage you to, to just receive prayer for that today. And then the last group was something that happened earlier in the first service when we were praying. Um, and it's this idea of there are some of us in here that Bo was talking about, the freedom to be yourself. Some of you... Um, It's not about God walking beside you because you don't even want to walk beside yourself. Like, you can't even imagine a God that would walk beside you because you you don't even like what you are, what he's made. And and I don't know exactly how he wants to speak to that to you today, but I believe he does. So we're going to pray and, and have some time for a response. I'll pray. God, thank you that you love us in ways that go beyond any song or any picture or any nativity scene could could ever communicate. God, that there's this big, big God that we can worship, but part of what's amazing about this big God that we can worship is that God said, I'm going to step into the mess for empathy, for salvation, and for my kingdom to come. I don't know. I don't know why you did it, God. Some days I, I wonder, but you did. And so I pray that that we would respond this Christmas with thankfulness and space. God, show us how to make space for you to walk beside us, as you came to do. In Jesus' name, Amen.